Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. As you know, we are in a sermon series, and we are looking at the life of King David from First and Second Samuel. And at this point in our story, uh, David has finally become king over all the tribes of Israel. And his army has just recovered the Ark of the Covenant, which was captured by the Philistines uh, 30 years earlier. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, a wooden box. It was covered in gold and constructed according to the exact specifications that God gave to Moses. And it served as the physical manifestation of God's presence with his people. Now, what we're going to read today in 2 Samuel 6 has all the drama of a Hollywood summer blockbuster hit. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to 2 Samuel 6, or you can read along. Uh, It's printed in your order of worship. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. In Uzzah in Ohio, the sons of Abinadad were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon... Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window And saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. This is God's word, and it's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would visit us with your presence by your spirit in the exact places that we find ourselves this morning. Whether we find ourselves in confusion, fear, doubt, or even moments of joy, Lord, we we pray that you would use this word to lead us to King Jesus and that you would give us greater faith, hope, 
and love. Amen. Now, before we uh, jump into our passage this morning, I just want to take a moment to appreciate that the Ark of the Covenant was the inspiration for one of the most iconic movies of the 1980s, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, for those of you who weren't alive in 1981, the movie stars Harrison Ford as the archaeologist Indiana Jones, who is on a race with the Nazis to find the Lost Ark which Hitler believes will make his army invincible. Now, the movie is pure entertainment. And if you watch it, you're not going to learn much in terms of biblical history, but it has one overlap with our story. The power of God's presence blows away our expectations. And as we begin, I'd I'd like us to notice a few things in our passage. The first is this procession that we're seeing Escorting the ark has over 30,000 people in it. This was quite the parade. It was festive. It was loud. It kind of reminds me of the procession in the movie Aladdin when he enters Agrabah looking like a prince. The whole nation is celebrating because after more than 30 years, the ark of the covenant is finally coming home. Now, the value of the ark to the people of Israel cannot be overstated. It symbolized God's intimate and mighty dwelling with his people. It was where God met and spoke with Moses. The the ark had given the Israelites victory over their enemies, like when the walls of Jericho were felled. David calls the ark the footstool of God's throne. And so the ark represented both God's kingship and his reconciliation of his people to himself. As every day or every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into the most holy place, sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on the ark, making clear the path for relationship with the holy God. And yet, old King Saul hadn't pursued getting the ark back from the Philistines. So right away, we're meant to see something important about King David here. While Saul was ambivalent about God's presence, David's greatest motivating desire is proximity to God. He yearns for it. He delights in it. That's what the ark was about, access to and relationship with God. And so we can understand why this homecoming is worth a party. And we can also understand then the horror and confusion When the ox cart wobbles, the ark shifts, and Uzzah instinctively reaches out to grab it, and he is struck dead. The music stops. David is upended. Verse 8 says, David was angry that the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And then he is overcome with fear. He is afraid of God. David, at least to some degree, has thought that he was doing the right thing with good intentions. And yet, death halts his party. And he decides to send the ark away. Now, as odd as the story is, there are also ways that I think it's familiar to us. We have all experienced moments when our lives have been upended. When our plans made with good intentions and hopeful hearts have been overturned. 
I think many of us can relate to the feeling of being angry at our own powerlessness to make something right. And angry at God for our lack of understanding about what is going on in this moment. And we can surely relate to being afraid. Afraid that God will take away the thing that we love most. Afraid that the other shoe is going to drop at any moment. So how can we make sense of what is happening here? Well, the backstory is that God had given his law to his people and his rules about the ark were clear. No look, no touch, no ark, or excuse me, no cart. The ark was to be covered with a cloth and Levites of a specific clan were to transport it on their shoulders and Uzzah was not a part of this group. And no one was to touch it lest they die. And to be clear, Yahweh did not want them to die. In his kindness, he was explicit in his instructions. Now, without trivializing the story, I think it can be helpful to think in analogies. For example, uh, Pastor Aaron shared in a sermon a few weeks back that he doesn't like surprises. But back when I was first hired a long time ago, Pastor Aaron's birthday had uh, fallen on the same day as one of our church cookouts. And I got the great idea that when Pastor Aaron arrived at the cookout on the grassy lot, I would make an announcement before everyone and we would all sing happy birthday to him. Seemed to me like a really cool thing for an assistant pastor to do uh, for his boss. But just before I hit play on this plan, a little voice popped into my head that said, you should probably run this by Aaron first. And when I did, Aaron said something like this. Please don't, man. That's what his mouth said. But his eyes said, do you like your job? Would you like to keep your job? So knowing what we know about Pastor Aaron, what if I consistently chose to surprise him despite him clearly articulating his strong preference? I mean, this would wear mightily on our relationship over the years. And if I insisted on treating him like this because I felt like surprises were awesome and he should love them, perhaps at some point we would need to part ways. Well, I want to suggest that something similar is happening in our passage this morning. God was clear about how the ark was to be handled. The boundaries that he had set around the ark were meant to tutor his people in who he is. But the tension that we keep seeing in the Old Testament is God's people saying, Lord, we want all the blessing that your presence brings, but you should know we are going to treat you how we want to treat you. And so Uzzah touching the ark was not the first mistake. It followed from a series of choices of not responding appropriately to the dwelling of God. A kind of growing comfort with the habit of disregarding God's revelation of himself in favor of their own wisdom and convenience. And so Uzzah's death isn't arbitrary. Does that make it less unsettling? Absolutely not. But what we and David are left to wrestle with is this idea that God is God. 
lest we think that he is a benign grandpa in the sky, we see God here more like what C.S. Lewis tried to convey in making his Christ figure a lion, Aslan, who cannot be boxed, cannot be tamed. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And so after all this, David is understandably reluctant to bring the ark into the capital city. And apparently this poor guy named Obed-Edom was taking a bathroom break or something when they had this conversation about what to do with the ark. Can you imagine being the person whose home the ark gets sent to? I mean, it would have felt like a death sentence for him and his family. And yet, that is not at all what happens here. The ark is in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and it makes everyone and, and all that he has flourish. We can imagine that the rain falls and his crops grow more than they ever had before. His sheep are safe from, from wolves. Sick family members get strong and children grow free from disease. Drawing close to God is meant to bring flourishing and blessing for his daughters and sons. And this is exactly what Obed-Edom experiences here. I think we're meant to see that there is a difference between the fear of God and awe of God. And church, we are not meant to live afraid of God. Think about it. How messed up is the idea of a child running away from their father when he comes home? I mean, we instinctively know that that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Fear only became the default setting of our heart when sin first entered into God's good world. And yet, God is worthy of awe. And if we don't have some sort of wonder as we come to him, then, then maybe we have not wrestled with how mighty he is. I mean, frankly, if we want a God who is large enough to deal with all of the evil in this world, to overcome death, to exist outside of time and space, such that he has the power to make all things new, then church, we want a God who is worthy of all. And David hears of the blessing that Obed-Edom experiences, and he rejoices. His awe has been restored, and his fear has been assuaged. And so he brings the ark to Jerusalem, celebrating with wild abandon, so that God's presence will bless the whole nation. As we consider how to apply this passage to our lives, I think it is helpful for us to recognize and name that each one of us here all want blessing. We all want blessing. We want our work to be meaningful and fruitful. We want our relationships to blossom with love and laughter and joy and mutual understanding. We want the bodies and minds of those we love to be strong and healthy and full of life. We desire blessing because we were made for it. And so what this passage reminds us of is that, number one, blessing comes in relational proximity to the Lord, the source of goodness and life and wholeness and peace. And number two, 
there is, I think, goodness in understanding that we cannot diminish God and remake him into our own image. Blessing comes as we take seriously the questions, how would God have us live now? What choices would he have us make? What does it mean to walk with him in this moment? As we get to the end of our passage, we see the ark finally arrives in Jerusalem. And I want to briefly note a small detail that happens as the ark enters the city. David is fully caught up in rejoicing. He is among the people, and he is dancing like a commoner. And his wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looks out of the window, and she is disgusted at him. And they go on to have a fight about what she sees as his lack of royal dignity. And in this moment of David's greatest joy and fulfillment up to this moment, her voice speaks words of shaming and mocking. I mean, David has done this amazing thing. He has been faithful in bringing God's presence back to the center of his people. But here is someone close to David who is offended at his joy, who sneers at his best attempts to fulfill God's calling in his life. And as with David, there may be voices in our lives that undermine and mock the beauty and the goodness that we are meant to bring in this world. They say we're not enough even when we are at our best. And for many of us, the words of accusation that we hear are an old refrain And we can't even remember a time before we first heard them. But I think like David, we get to choose whether to listen to the accuser or listen to the voice of God. Jesus said, the thief, the accuser, comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and life to the full. You see, David's response to Mikkel's contempt is to say, essentially, I know who God has made me to be. And I rest in his presence. And I can't squelch my joy in his care for me. You see, unlike Indiana Jones, we don't have to go looking for the lost ark to find the power and presence of God. God has come to dwell with us in Jesus. Church, he entered into our humanity so that we might look upon God's face and see God looking at our face in a way that we understand. The God who is the judge of the earth is also the God of all compassion who has numbered the hairs on our heads. And we can approach him and we can touch him because he has offered his body in our place so that death will not rule over us. And when we look at Jesus... We see the most awe-inspiring attribute of God. (laughs) He is the king who calls us friends. He is the revelation of God who loves to eat with us. And when he comes to our neighborhood, he raises the dead and he heals our sick. He is the good shepherd who lays down his own life to enable us to celebrate without fear in the presence of God. And church, it is there 
that we are invited to lay down our weighty burdens of fear and confusion and doubt and receive grace, blessing, and joy in their place. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, at least on the surface, this seemingly um, confusing story. But out of this story, Father, would you lead us to awe of you, awe of Jesus, awe of the Spirit who empowers us. And Father, may we find rest in your presence. May we find blessing that we so deserve, that we so need in your presence. And Father, may we celebrate in your presence as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.